starting in verse 6, it says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me, and he strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Achilla and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as does Puddins and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the reading of your word. We're thankful for your word, Lord. I pray that you would illumine our hearts and our minds to your word and the message today, Lord. And I pray that the Spirit would anoint Parker, Lord, and fill him with strength and courage to proclaim your word to us. In your son's holy name we pray. Amen. I saw all the names, and I said, I think this is a good one for Kyle. <laughs> good job, Kyle. Then I forgot he was going to do it until he started walking up behind me. So <laughs> if you could write your own obituary, what would it say? If you could write your own obituary, what would it say? You know, they can't be very long in order to fit into the newspaper. Uh, you have the first bit, where you're born, the last bit, who you leave behind, and the very last bit, who's doing the service. Uh, so you basically have about 150 words or so to boil your life down. If you could do that, how would you describe it? What are the things that you would want others to describe about your life? And the second question is more dangerous. What would they actually say? 2 Timothy 4 really contains the last recorded words of Paul. His life had been a hard one. He had been through a lot, of, a lot of schools of a lot of hard knocks, and there had been nothing about, easy about his career as an apostle to the Gentiles, and, and now it has come to a screeching halt. He will soon be 
beheaded. He knows this to be true. This is what he writes about his career as an apostle, his calling. And it's found in verse 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Sixteen words in English, ten in Greek, short enough to be put on a tombstone. Personally, as a minister of the gospel, I've thought a lot about this passage this week and thought about my own legacy, what would I like to be remembered for. My prayer is that at the end of my ministry I can say this. Actually, on my grave I want something written by Count von Zizendorf. Don't you wish you had that last name, Count von Zizendorf? Preach Christ, die, and be forgotten. That's my aspiration. Preach Christ, die, and be forgotten. Hopefully no one will write your obituary for quite some time. And most of us still have time left to impact what will be written there. What would you like it to say? What will it say? Well, as we come to our text, where are we in history? Well, uh, last week when we finished Acts, we left on a cliffhanger. I mean, Paul is in prison in Rome, and we don't know what's going to happen to him. And, And so we have to actually parse out from uh, 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus, called the Pastorals, which were written after Paul's first imprisonment in Rome, where we left Paul last time. We have to kind of parse together what happens. We don't know everything that happens. We don't know the timeline, but we have in those books these mentions of places that we know he didn't visit before, or at least we don't have a record of. So it seems that Paul was released after his first imprisonment in that house, uh, under house arrest in Rome, and that uh, he had desired to go to Spain, and so hopefully he did. We don't know, but we do know that he ended up going to Crete, where he left Titus as pastor. He went to Colossae and Ephesus. In Ephesus, he left Timothy, his protege, to whom this letter is written. He left him there to be pastor. He spent time in Macedonia and Nicopolis and Miletus and Troas. We don't know when, how long, or the direction he took. But we do know at some point he ends up back in Rome in custody and things have changed since he was first in custody. Emperor Nero began his career as emperor on a fairly even keel, but, but something happened. He, I think Satan took hold of him honestly and he ended up a really bad dude. In fact, it is surmised that he set fire to Rome and then he blamed it on the Christians. And blaming it on the Christians, what he did is he just started killing Christians left and right and and it's after that, that happened in AD 64, sometime 80, after AD 64, Paul is re-imprisoned and things are very different. Before he had been under house arrest and now he is what is, we think was called the Mamertine prison. You can go see it. It's there in Rome. Uh, it's been changed since. There are shrines and altars and a church or two actually uh, above it. It was a hole in the ground. It had originally been a cistern for collecting water, and the, the Romans, they didn't have a system of imprisonment. They didn't keep you in prison for very long. Rather, it served as a holding tank for those who were about to be executed. It was 15 feet wide, 15 feet deep, and 8 feet tall underground, and there was one hole in the ceiling. That's where you got your sunlight. That's where any provisions brought to you by your friends, the Romans weren't, weren't concerned about you. They might have fed you if you bribed them. That's where your friends would lower your provisions down. That's where they would throw you, quite literally, into prison. It was muddy. It was dark. It was moist. There's no bathroom. It was squalid. 
Tradition also says that Peter was in prison there in the same year, not, not together with Paul, but in the same year, and they were both martyred by, uh, by, by Nero. And so here is the world's greatest evangelist, right? The church planner, a missionary, living basically in solitary confinement with rags for clothes. Verse 16 says he's already had an initial hearing under Roman law, when you'd show up, it was kind of like a, a pre-trial hearing to see where you stood, an indictment, I don't know all these legal things, but an initial hearing. And the, and the text tells us that no one was there with him. That the Roman Christians whom he loved and prayed for and he'd ministered to, they abandoned him. Things politically were very different than before. In fact, Demas who had been there with him in first imprisonment, had traveled with him, and apparently he gets to Rome and he abandons Paul. The heat had gotten too hot. Alexander the coppersmith, we have no clue who he is, but apparently he was a pretty bad dude and may be responsible for Paul's imprisonment. He, he warns Timothy, hey, watch out for this guy. But while everybody else had deserted him, apparently Luke hadn't gotten there yet, while everybody else had deserted him, no one stood by him, is what the text says. And using the same word, Paul says, but Jesus stood by me. It's good to know that Jesus won't abandon you. Your friends might. Your friends will, by the way. Your friends will fail you at some point if they hadn't already. I will fail you if I hadn't already. Many times. Jesus will not. Jesus will not. So what would have been your reaction to such a situation? I hope you and I never find out, but if, if we do... Will we react like Paul did in verse 6? For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I love this word departure. For those of you who love boats, it's actually the word departure comes from loosening the rope, the line rather, that, that connects you to the dock. His time uh, attached to the dock of ministry has come to an end, and it's time to be cast off and into the seas of eternity. It's, it's a real fun play on words here. What's he talking about is about being poured out as a drink offering. What does that mean? Well, it's language that Timothy, whom he had discipled and, and mentored through the years, who's now a very capable ministry and will take up the mantle from Paul, is something he would have known a lot about growing up with a Jewish mother. This is Old Testament language. In the Old Testament sacrifices, in some of the sacrifices at the end, there was something called the drink offering. And it would be wine mixed with spices. And it would be poured out against the base of the altar. And Paul has said in, in past passages, actually, that he would be happy if his life were poured out as a drinking offering to the Lord for the sake of the uh, faith of the Philippians, especially in Philippians chapter 2. And here he is, he is comparing his life that it is, is having been poured out over these many years as he has lived this life of sacrifice and, and service to the Lord, but now it's getting close to the very end. It's been poured out slowly, and it's getting close to the last drops. It was a life of service to the Lord. While he isn't dead yet, he's saying, it's, look at guys, it's, it's already done. It's coming. Well, he's an apostle. Obviously, his life had been poured out as a drink offering to the Lord. Obviously, it had been a life of service to the Lord. But what about you and me? Well, I guess Kyle and I are the only professional Christians here, right? The, the ones who are paid to minister to others. But what about you? Well, Paul had written something very similar to the Roman church. The ones who had abandoned him, it seems. Do you remember the words of Romans 12, 1? 
I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices. As living sacrifices. This is similar sacrificial language, right? This is just as Paul's life was poured out as a sacrifice to God, he's going to use a different sacrificial language to, to talk about how we are to live in a sacrifice of praise to God as we seek to work, worship, and serve our God, where we work and where we live and where we play, holy and pleasing to God. This is our spiritual or reasonable service. You know, everybody worships something. We were hardwired to worship. And we were hardwired to worship something outside of us, to serve something outside of us. And the question is, who or what do we serve? Whom or what do we serve? Paul served the Lord here. Our desire is to serve the Lord, but man, that flesh is so strong, isn't it? And our minds get so distracted. If you fast forward to the writing of your obituary, they had to list whom or what you worshipped. What would you what would be put there? See, God has called us all uniquely to different places in life. I don't know how you do it. I get to work with believers all day long. And most of you don't. And I pray for you. Because in your workplace, you are called to be a blessing to those around you. As you you juggle the, 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 the pressures of work and finances and sports and church and school and activities and hobbies. I, I pray for you. That's a lot, isn't it? I know a lot of you are just worn out. I, I'm worn out just watching. It's hard, isn't it? And in the midst of all this, we are called to, be, to live as living sacrifices to God. What a blessing sports are. What a blessing friends are. What a blessing hunting is. And as we interact in every one of these spheres, I wonder, do we desire to be remembered because of our love of God and love of others? See, God calls us to be living sacrifices. The problem is, as one of my professors like to say, you know the problem with living sacrifices is they like to crawl off the altar, right? My heart, it just... It's always looking for something other than God. Don't, haven't you experienced this? My sinful heart, it, it, I'm prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. The good news is that while we can't change what's been done in the past, those things don't have to define us. Did you know that? Your past doesn't have to define you. That's good news, isn't it? You know, those things don't have to dictate how we live from here on out. I've messed up in some pretty powerful ways in, in my testimony for my love of God and where I work, live, and play. I imagine you have two. You know, it's never, it's never too late to change your obituary. As we think about the thief on the cross, we have his obituary. Did you, did, have you ever thought about that? We have the thief on the cross, his obituary in Luke chapter 23, verse 42. Here he is. He'd done all these bad things over all these years. He said he deserved to be on that cross. He rebukes the other thief. said, hey, look, be quiet, man. You and I deserve to be here, but he doesn't. 
And then he turns to Jesus and said, remember me, today. remember me when you come to your kingdom. And what does Jesus say? Today you will be with me in paradise. That's his obituary. And it happened, what, like five minutes before he died? Well, Paul's life is being poured out and will end soon. And, and as he reflects on his life, he uses three phrases to summarize his ministry as an apostle in verse 7. First, I have fought the good fight. Second, I have finished the race. Third, I have kept the faith. First, he uses this metaphor of fighting the good fight. It's a, the, the fight here is not talking about a fight like a physical fight or it, it, in a boxing match, yes. But we're, this isn't talking about war. This isn't talking about violence. This is not or criminal violence, I should say. This is talking about wrestling or boxing or some other kind of athletic competition. The fight for him had been a tough one. Can you imagine all the things Paul had been through? It was a fight every day. There had to be an opponent, and there were a great many opponents. He had been stoned. He had been shipwrecked three times, a night and a day left at sea. He had been danger from rivers, danger from robbers, and his own people, the Gentiles in the city, in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, and hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. It had been a fight. And as he looks back, he's able to say, by the grace of God, he had fought the good fight. Was Paul perfect? No. Paul is not Jesus. He points us to Jesus when we see him doing good things. He's not Jesus. By the mercies of God, though, he was able to look back and see how the Lord had sustained him in those hard times, and he'd fought the good fight. You know, the only way to fight the good fight... A lot of times we think it's, I just need to be stronger. I just need to work harder. Well, there are elements of self-sacrifice, discipline, and being intentional. Yes. But Paul had learned in order to fight the good fight that he couldn't depend on his own strength. Haven't you found that to be true? When I lean on my own strength, that's when I get in trouble. What had Paul learned? 2 Corinthians 12, verse 8 through 10. A sweet passage. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this. He's talking about his thorn in the flesh, that it shall leave me. God didn't take it away from him. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient. You know what sufficient means? Everything you need. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. How in the world had Paul ended his ministry and he could look back and say, I fought the good fight? Well, it wasn't from Paul. It was from Jesus and the grace that Jesus had given him. Don't you need that sustaining grace just to get through the week? I know I do. Sunday is the beginning of the week, and as we come running to the table soon, I love the Lord's Supper. I love to start the week with the Lord's Supper because it's a reminder to me that I need Jesus daily and I'm coming to Him and getting Jesus so that He might daily give me strength. As a sidebar, let me say this, that um, as we think about fighting the good fight, I think increasingly though because of the distractions we have, uh, the phones in our pocket, um, and just the sinfulness of our hearts, I think one of the big problems is not so much that we're not fighting the fight well. Is I think sometimes that the struggle of our generation is that we just, we're not engaging in the fight. 
You know, it, it is so much easier to pull out my cell phone and start playing a game or checking Facebook or checking my email rather than engaging with my children. That takes, that takes effort. I love my children dearly. It's, it's so much easier to check out when turn the TV on, right? It's far easier merely to talk about what is right with, with school or club or family or whatever than to engage. Right? We are called to engage. I think that's one of the things, especially for young men, is being taught work ethic, right? And, and to engage the world around them. The reality is we are engaged every day in spiritual warfare, whether we realize it or not. Will we be intent, will we be um, intentional rather, about engaging? Well, the second thing is Paul says that he's finished the race. Now the race, the course here, so the idea is that there's been a course set before Paul for him to run. Now don't think of uh, the track at the high school. Uh, think more of uh, cross country. Or, or I even think maybe the mud run. You know the mud run? You know, that goes through... The, I mean, it's like the worst... What are the worst things we can put before these people and hope they don't die? I think that's, that's basically how a mud run works. You know, they're going through the streams and the mud, and they bring in more mud, and they bring in obstacles. That's kind of what Paul was talking about. God had set a course before Paul, and Paul has now... He's, he's looking back and saying, you know, I, by God's grace, I have run the race. I have completed the race. So we think about this idea of a race... Is, is kind of a description of each one of our lives God has prepared beforehand. Ephesians 2, verse 10, he's, He has created good works for us that we might walk in them. God has set the course of our lives, and it's many twists and turns. Now, Paul's course is different than yours and mine, isn't it? I'm not an apostle, you're not an apostle. I'm not you, you're not me. Everybody's course is different. The question is, will we run our race well? Will we run the course that is set before us with intentionality, with a desire to serve God and to love Him and to love others? Or will we seek to make shortcuts or not play according to the rules? Will we, you know, in the rabbit, uh, the, the tortoise and the hare, will we take a nap along the route? It doesn't work out very well in the end, does it, for that rabbit? Paul calls us to focus on the, pr- on the prize as we think about the course in our lives, as we think about living the course of our life well, running the race well, are there obstacles in your life that are keeping you from running it well? Sins you need to deal with, problems in marriage, problems at work, problems where you work, live, play. Did, did, did the Holy Spirit bring anything to your mind just now as we're talking about this? Paul think, is Paul thinking, Paul's thinking here in the context of ministry. So let's think about it from a church perspective. On September 23rd, 1884, a group of believers met in a field, a cornfield, down by what is now the Bank of Bruton. And so started First Presbyterian Church. You know, we didn't have a building for the first year, four years of our existence. We met at the Methodist Church, which then was down where Provallis is now and at a school over in Alco, which hadn't been in existence for for many years. Since 1884, the Lord has caused us to fight the good fight, to run the course well. But that doesn't mean that 
Well, let's say this, you know, past success. Praise God for that. And now it's our turn. Now it's your turn. That we would keep the faith and stay true to the Word of God. That we would minister and love one another. That we would continue the work of Christ in this church and in this community. The third thing he says is he's kept the faith. What's he talking about? Well, think about all the pain and suffering that Paul could have um, kept from himself, that he could have saved himself from if he had just changed the message that had been entrusted to him. Think about that. Did he really need to talk about sin all the time? Is Jesus really the only way of salvation? What about this whole Jesus rising from the dead thing? That got him in a lot of trouble. Couldn't he talk a little bit less about holiness? Or What about all those hard things he said to the Corinthian church? Have you read Corinthians? Couldn't he have just tweaked it a little bit? Well, the answer is no. Paul had kept the faith. He had stayed true to the message that had been given to him by Christ and the message of the Old Testament, the message that Christ came to save sinners like you and me. See, here's the thing. If he had changed the message, then the message would have had no power to change you or me. But Paul paid the price, didn't he? He's about to be beheaded. His his head is about to be removed from his body with disastrous results. And yet, in the face of this, he had kept the faith. It's a call to us to keep the faith too. The pressure can be hard, can it, to soften things a little bit. You could lose friends because you believe what the Bible says about some hot topic. If it hadn't happened yet, it probably will. Or perhaps trouble at work if you don't follow the latest sensitivity training. Or students, what the, the ridicule, ridicule you face at school when your friends want you to do something that you, you know you're not meant to. The pressure can be hard. I was telling some of our students this morning that uh, I didn't like my senior year. Senior year is supposed to be just awesome, right? I didn't have any friends. My, my friends graduated. They were a year ahead of me. And my, my last year was hard. And I faced ridicule, and it wasn't nearly as bad as it could be. I don't want to say it was all miserable. I enjoyed it, but it, it, was, it was a hard year. But what I love is that no season is forever. Isn't that good news? No season is forever. And so our goal is to keep the faith in the season, to, to run the good race in that season. The next season will take care of itself, because guess who's with you now in your season? Jesus. Guess who will be in your next season with you? Jesus. See, just like Paul had been there in many seasons in his, in his ministry, in very hard times, and sometimes his friends had been there with him. This time, no one was there with him. And yet, as no one stood beside him, who stood beside him? Jesus stood beside him. And soon, he says, he will be rescued. <laughs> How will he be rescued? Will he be rescued? He'll be rescued through death, delivered into the kingdom. Well, Paul is close to going home. In verse 8, we read this, Henceforth there is laid for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all those who have loved His appearing. Paul speaks of a crown here. Uh, But the crown here is not the crown we're thinking of. Rather, it's a wreath. In the good old days, in, in the Greco-Roman world, when you win a, a, a race, 
you didn't get a, a medal, you got a crown of ivy or some other plant-like substance. You know, they'd put it on your head, and that was, that was the mark that you had won. That's what he's talking about. And what is this crown of righteousness that he's speaking of? It's not that Paul's been this great guy, and therefore he gets to go to heaven. It doesn't work like that. Rather, the award here is eternal life. The award is given to him by God's grace. It's not awarded to him being in heaven because he deserves it. Rather, he and everyone else who has loved his appearing, that's talking about the appearing of Christ at the end of time, will receive this imperishable crown. Ivy will wilt. The things we run off will perish. But the imperishable crown is our inheritance in Christ, which is salvation, which is heaven forever. And he gets it not because he is righteous, but because he has been the recipient of God's righteousness, of Christ's righteousness rather, when he became a believer in Acts chapter 9. This is the great news of the gospel, the gospel for which Paul is about to die. You know that each and every one of us before we became Christians were guilty before God. It wasn't that we were fighting the race well or poorly. It's that we hated God and were in rebellion against Him. Our race was in the other direction, getting as far away from Him as possible. Forget keeping the faith. We said it was a myth, made up, no good, evil even. This is because of our sinful hearts. Our sinful hearts resulting in sinful lives, salted with sinful words and actions. This is who each and every one of us were before we were believers. But praise be to God that the Father sent His Son into this world. That one day we might be awarded. Did you hear that word? Awarded? The crown of righteousness. I deserve nothing except hell. But Jesus, by His love and mercy, He took upon Himself the curse for my sin and your sin on the cross. For our sake, He, God, made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin. He made Him to be sin, to be the record of your sin and my sin. We can't pay for our sin. We can't make up for our sin. Something had to be done outside of us. And so Jesus, who is outside of creation, He made all of it. He entered into creation that He might live the perfect life, that He might die in our place. For our sake, He made Him to be our sin so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. Wow! Because, see, that righteousness is what is required to receive the award, to receive the the crown of righteousness. And it's not our righteousness. We have to be given this righteousness. So we come to Jesus and we say, Jesus, I repent of my sin. Please forgive me. I trust in Christ for salvation. And I ask, I ask that you would save me. This is the free gift that God offers. And it's offensive. And Paul would soon die. Sometime in the mid-60s A.D., Nero had his head removed. And Paul was immediately ushered into the presence of God. And we have Paul's obituary. We have Paul's obituary, and it's never too late to rewrite your own. 
There's a warning here in the text. We need to end with it. The Greek word that's translated awarded in verse 8, that Paul was, will be awarded the crown of righteousness upon the day of Christ's return. This Greek word also shows up, shows up in verse, verse 14, that those who opposed Paul's ministry, Alexander the coppersmith, would be repaid on the day of judgment. It's the same word. All will stand before, the God, before God on the day of judgment. But the good news is that if you're a believer in Christ, Jesus has already taken away the sting of death. He's already taken the condemnation for your sin and for mine. This is what's worth dying for. This is what's worth living for. For as believers, we have nothing to be afraid of of the day of judgment. Because of Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to fight the good faith, excuse me, fight the good fight, to finish the race, and that we would keep the faith. We pray these things in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit's name. Amen. Well, as we come to the Lord's Supper, the hymn of preparation is 385. We'll stay seated as we sing verses 1 and 2 of 385.